So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Barry Brinson. I'm one of the elders here at Two Rivers. I'm not a pastor. Uh, we're between pastors, and as has been mentioned a couple of times, our pastor, the former pastor, Phil Stogner, is preparing to go to the mission field, and so we're filling the pulpit. Uh, when I agreed to fill the pulpit this morning, to preach this morning, I had a, an idea for a sermon that had been kind of rattling around in my head for a couple of weeks, and I thought, well, I can put that together and, and preach this morning. And uh, I sat down earlier this week to write that sermon, and this is not the sermon that you're going to hear today. I got to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 and kind of got stuck there, and I couldn't get out of that chapter. And so I believe, sort of like we read with the confession, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I believe that God had a hand in that, that he has this message uh, for us this morning, and I hope that that's the case. So before I get started, um, join me in prayer, please. Father, you are a gracious God. You are good to us beyond all measure. You are sovereign over all things. Lord, I pray that uh, this morning that you would be with me as I uh, deliver this message, that you would um, speak through me, and that this message would be a message that uh, is important and needs to be heard. Father, we uh, thank you for this time today, even in all of the, the challenges that we've had this morning in worship. We thank you that you are here with us and that you uh, will continue to be with us. We uh, lift these things up now in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. One thing. It's just one thing. In the movie City Slickers, Billy Crystal plays the part of Mitch Robbins, a 39-year-old advertising executive from New York. Mitch is going through a bit of a midlife crisis. So he and two of his buddies, who are also having their own family and life crisis issues, decide to go to a dude ranch and spend two weeks driving a herd of cattle. In one of my favorite scenes in the movie, Mitch finds himself riding alone with Curly, the tough and weathered trail boss played by Jack Palance. The two men are riding along the trail looking for cows that ran off during a stampede that Mitch caused. At one point, Curly turns to Mitch and in a gravelly voice asks, do you know what the secret of life is? Mitch is confused and curious, and he says, no, what? With the slightest smile on his face, Curly holds up his index finger and he says, one thing, just one thing. That's great, but what's that one thing? Curly said, that's what you have to figure out. You stick to that and everything else don't mean nothing. The secret of life comes down to one thing. But unlike Mitch, we don't have to spend two weeks herding cattle to try to figure it out. That one thing is clearly spelled out for us in the, gospel, in the Bible, and it's freely offered to everyone. That one thing is the gospel. If you want to find happiness, if you want to find contentment, you want to know the secret to life, then you need the gospel. That's it. It's just one thing. But what is the gospel? Paul breaks it down for us in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. But before we look at that passage, let me give you a little background and context. Paul had spent about a year and a half in Corinth during his second missionary journey, sometime 52, 53 AD. It was during that time that he 
met Aquila and Priscilla, and they worked together as tent makers during the week, Paul preaching in the synagogues on the, on the Sabbath. Now, the Jews of Corinth, they largely rejected Paul and his message, so he turned to the Gentiles. And interestingly, the church that Paul started was started in the home of Justice, who lived right next door to the synagogue. If you want to know more about Paul's time in Corinth, you can find that in Acts 18. But fast forward about four years, Paul's now on his third missionary journey, and he's in Ephesus, and he receives two letters, one letter from, uh, concerning uh, the questions of marriage, singleness, and Christian liberty, and the other letter from Aquila describing a set of problems that the church was undergoing. The church was mired in immorality, selfishness, divisions, factions, and people even taking each other to court and suing each other over their differences. So to address these issues, Paul writes this letter. And our passage this morning, it's near the end of this letter, uh, 15 out of 16 chapters. And although this is not the main point of today's message, I'd encourage you to read the entire chapter 15. Uh, It is considered the most detailed explanation of the resurrection of Christ and of believers offered in the Bible. It's it's really uh, a great explanation of the resurrection. But this morning we're going to focus on the first 11 verses. Paul begins this section, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul tells the church in Corinth that it was the gospel that he preached while he was with them. This is not a new message. Paul is reminding them of things he's already told them, things they already know. For 18 months, Paul preached the gospel in Corinth. Paul says the Corinthians now stand on that gospel. He's writing to believers. They may not be mature Christians, and the church is certainly having some problems, but this letter is addressed to believers. Then Paul says it's the gospel by which the Corinthians are being saved. Paul is reminding them of the hope that they have in Jesus. Paul preached the gospel they received the gospel. They now stand on the gospel, and they're being saved by the gospel. The gospel is at work, past, present, and future. The word gospel means good news, but it's not just the words or the good news that saves. No, Paul is clear. They must hold fast to or believe the good news that he preached. Likewise, we must believe the gospel if we're to be saved. In verse 3 and Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I, what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 3, he says, I delivered unto you as of first importance that which I received. Paul says the gospel is of first importance. It is the most important. The phrase first importance comes from the Greek word protoos. It's derived from the word protos, which translates first, as in firstborn, or the first will be last. But this word has a more specific meaning. It it means of first importance, or first place. The word is only found twice in Scripture, here and in Mark 6.21. In Mark 6, we find the story of King Herod. He's hosting a banquet for his birthday, and he invites all of, the, 
all of his nobles, all of his military commanders, and all the leading men, or the protoist men, he invites all the most important people. So when Paul tells the Corinthians that the gospel is the first importance, using this word protoist, he's saying that the gospel is the most important thing. It's the one thing. Again, but what is it? What is this one thing? What is the good news of the gospel? Paul lays it out in verses 3 and 4. The gospel message, that one thing is this. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And all this happened in accordance with the Scriptures. It's important to note that phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures, which occurs in both verse 3 and in verse 4. Paul repeats this phrase because he doesn't want his readers to miss it. All the Old Testament points to God's plan to save his people by sending his Son to be their Savior through his death and resurrection. One of the strongest arguments for Jesus being the Christ is the way he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus and only Jesus can claim that. So Paul wants his readers to know that everything he's told them about Jesus and about the gospel is in accordance with the scriptures. So what does Paul have to say about the gospel? He presents three essential doctrines. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried and was raised from the dead. And we are saved by grace. First, Christ died for our sins. He didn't die for no reason. He didn't die as a martyr. He didn't die as a result of a miscarriage of justice. No, Christ died for our sins. We can't sugarcoat that. Jesus died because we're sinners. We have to acknowledge that it was our brokenness, our sinfulness, that caused Jesus to die. If you aren't sure if that applies to you, Let me point you to Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some, not most, but all have sinned. You have sinned, and I have sinned, and we continue to sin each day. But what is sin? The Westminster Catechism answer says, Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In more modern language, sin is anything contrary to the character and commandments of God. We sin when we fail to follow God's law and when we actively break God's law. Whether it is in thought, word, or deed, we fall short of the commandment of God to keep God's law all day, every day. God demands our perfect obedience, but we're sinners. We were born sinners, inheriting our sinful nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And we will continue to sin until we die. We're hopeless and we're helpless. We stand condemned and we deserve to receive God's judgment and wrath. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. In the Old Testament, God's people would sacrifice animals. Animals that were not only innocent, but animals that were visually perfect or without blemish. The blood from the animal would be sprinkled on the altar The fat was burned on the altar, and the the carcass was taken outside of the camp and burned in the fire as an atonement or reparation for the sins of the people. The judgment of God was transferred from the people to the animal, and the animal was killed because sin demands to be punished by death. In verse 3, Paul writes, 
Christ died for our sins. The word for means in place of or because of. A substitution has been made. Jesus became the sacrifice. We should die for our sins, but Jesus went to the cross so that we don't have to. He paid the price that we could not pay, the price that could not be paid by sacrificing bulls or lambs. So how is it that Jesus can do what no one else can do? How is it that he can pay the ransom for our sins? Because Jesus is not just another man. Jesus was a man. He was fully man. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God the Father sent his Son to be born of a woman. Jesus is flesh and blood. He is fully man. And Jesus is also fully God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God dwelling in the flesh. Jesus is both fully man and fully God. And unlike every other man or woman, Jesus lived a sinless life. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. It is Jesus, and only Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God and Son of Man, who can lay down his life as a substitutionary death for sinners like you and like me. Either we pay the penalty for our sin by spending eternity separated from God and suffering in hell, or Jesus pays the penalty for us once on the cross. 1 Peter 3.8 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And just to be clear, Jesus paid the penalty for all our sins, past, present, and future. There's no sin too big, too ugly, or too shameful for Jesus. The second essential element of the gospel is found in our passage is the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 4 says, He was buried and he was raised on the third day. There are those who doubt the death of Jesus, but Jesus died on the cross. The soldier pierced his side with a spear to confirm that he was dead. His dead body was taken down from the cross and placed in a tomb. The tomb was sealed and was guarded by soldiers. The fact that Jesus was buried and spent three days in the tomb substantiates the fact that Jesus really died. As I said earlier, death is a result of sin. From the time of Adam's first sin, men and women have died. Animals and plants die. We live in a world, a world broken by sin, and death is inescapable. But God, the creator of all things, the one who gives life and sustains life, broke the power of death. Through his matchless power and endless mercy, God reverses death. God raised Jesus from the dead. In Luke 24, when the women went to the tomb on the third day, they found the tomb empty. Two angels who were there asked them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He isn't here, but has been raised. Jesus was no longer dead. He was alive, and he is alive. And the resurrection of Jesus had many witnesses. Jesus appeared to his disciples, to the multitude, and finally to Paul. Verses 5 through 8 say, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, many of whom are still alive today. 
though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul says that many of those who saw the resurrected Jesus were still alive at the time he wrote this letter. And that was around 57 AD, more than 20 years after the death of Jesus. Now, Jewish law required the testimony of two witnesses to substantiate a claim. Here we have not just two witnesses or a dozen close friends of Jesus. We have hundreds of people who witnessed the resurrected Jesus, many of whom were still alive decades later. As I said earlier, the rest of chapter 15 is Paul's detailed arguments in support of and explaining the resurrection. Verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Those who put their faith in Jesus, who believe in the gospel, they will be made alive. At the end of this chapter, in verses 44, 45, I'm sorry, 54 and 55, Paul says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because of the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross, death is swallowed up, and Jesus won the victory. Those who put their faith in Jesus will spend eternity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Finally, our faith is by God's grace. In verse 9, Paul writes, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Before his conversion, Paul was an enemy of the church. He not only rejected the gospel and the deity of Christ, but Paul actively tried to destroy the church. All that changed when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Then Jesus appeared to Ananias, in a vision, and he said, He, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Paul is an apostle called by Jesus, and Paul understands the grace that he received in this call. He writes in verse 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Paul was saved and rescued from sin and death by God through his grace. You and I are also saved by his grace. In Ephesians 2.28, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It was by God's grace that Paul stopped persecuting the church and became a minister of the gospel, often being persecuted for that faith. Paul does not take his faith or his calling for granted. He works hard to ensure the good news of the gospel is preached to as many as he can reach. But he's not seeking credit or glory. Rather, his only desire is for people to believe. Like Paul, our faith is a gift from God. By God's grace... And not because of anything we've done or will do, we are saved through faith. The gospel is God's plan for our salvation. God sent his son to stand in our place. Jesus received our punishment. He was raised from the dead and reigns in heaven for all eternity. All we have to do is believe. And Paul tells us that even our faith is a gift from God.
It would be impossible for us to believe any of this if it were not for God softening our hardened hearts, opening our closed minds, and enabling us to believe. In Acts 16, we, we find the story of the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas had been arrested, beaten, and imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Beginning in verse 25, we read, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. It's that simple. It's that easy. Just believe the gospel, and you'll be saved. We tend to complicate things. We tend to complicate the gospel, but it really is that simple. As you've heard already this morning, Two Rivers is facing a number of challenging issues. We've got a lot of uncertainty ahead of us. We are without a pastor. We'll be relocating while repairs are being made to this building. In this time of uncertainty and transition, it would be easy for us to complicate the gospel. It'd be easy for us to become worried and anxious. It would be easy for Two Rivers to act like the church in Corinth and become divided over things that are not important. It would be easy for us to lose sight of the simplicity of the gospel. So let me remind you one more time. It's the gospel you received. It's the gospel on which you stand. And it's the gospel that saves. Like Curly said, it's just one thing. In closing prayer. Father, you are good to your people. You are gracious. You pour out your mercy on us. Father, you provided a way out of sin. It was through you, through your Son, that we can be saved. Father, we thank you for your gospel message, for the simplicity of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would guard our hearts, that we would not complicate your simple plan for salvation. We thank you now for all these things. We pray them in the strong name of Christ our Savior. Amen.